0: A few years ago, the expression, the, sh- the sufficiency of Christ, was a popular buzzword. And it was a theme for many Christian conferences, many books, many sermons. But now that that's 10 years or so in the rearview mirror, what was that? What was that all about? What was that gospel-centered movement that was all the rage in 2013? Also, what about Christocentric preaching? You know, preaching that centers on Christ. What about preaching Christ in every sermon? Many of the ones who rode that bandwagon are now moving on to new bandwagons, more popular trends. In fact, this tactic is so common that you would think that the name of our religion was Trendianity instead of Christianity based on how even leaders constantly look around to see what the next wave is that they can jump onto to try to establish themselves as leaders. When we sing the song here, Christ Be All, what does that term mean? What does does that title mean? Christ be all. When we speak of emptying ourselves of self, what does that mean? Today, I want to be clear, when we sing or when we say, may Christ be all and I be nothing, the starting place for understanding that statement is with the gospel. And it is with understanding, number one, what the gospel does and Number two, what the gospel is. These are the points of the message, which we have slides for. It'll be phrased slightly differently from that, so you can hold tight. But this brings us then into our first point. Number one, the gospel's power. The gospel's power. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received. And in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What we see in the, these words here in these first two verses is what the gospel does. We see the power of the gospel. We see the power of the gospel for all of the Christian's life. You see the gospel's effect, its impact. And I've divided this section into 4 subpoints, which will be on the next slide. First, we see the converting power of the gospel. The converting power of the gospel. Our passage says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received. The converting power of the gospel is this power to save you. To convert you. And this happens when you receive the gospel. If you have not received the gospel, then you are not yet saved. This component of the gospel is speaking of the regeneration of the gospel. Conversion, salvation, regeneration, the new birth. All of these terms refer to the experience of the Christian in their life, receiving Christ. These things are an experience, and we call them the new birth. If you are a Christian, you have been born again. If you have not been born again, You are not a Christian. This is very difficult for people in different denominational traditions to accept. They would say, no, I'm a Christian because I was baptized as an infant. I'm a Christian because I was raised in a Christian home, in a Christian country, in a Christian city, or a Christian neighborhood. I am a Christian even if I do not believe. That is wrong. It is false. I'm sure it's quite obvious to most of you, but there are people out there who function on such a different spiritual theological operating system that the statements that I've just made would be controversial to them. They would find them upsetting. How dare you say that I'm not a Christian just because I don't believe in Jesus? Or they might rephrase it. Just because I haven't been born again doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. You see, I was baptized as an infant. I was registered with the state church in Europe. My tax dollars are going to fund the state system, the church. I was on a, a, a kick a number of years, about 10 years ago. I was on this, um, I want to be a missionary to Iceland kick. It's the reason why I'm here today. Uh, that's the reason why I pursued a, a master's of arts in missions, and then was going to be like, okay, let's go to the mission field and let God move a sti- uh, a steer a moving ship instead of steering a parked ship. Like, if, if you're not doing anything or going anywhere, what do you expect God to do in your life? Like, you're just going to hang out until God like picks you up and drags you outside your house? Um, no, I was like, let me pursue the mission field and see what happens. So I ended up in New York and was like, this I guess is the spot. So I stopped, but. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd had a lot of conversations with with missionaries in Iceland, and they're the state churches, a Lutheran church, and um, he said, yeah, technically there's a state church, and it exists, but nobody goes, and the pastors are unbelievers, they're employees of the state, and the tax dollars are what are paying for this, and... Um, When a kid is born, they get baptized, they get registered as a Christian, and then they get confirmed when they're about 12 years old, and then most of them will never darken the door of the church ever again. They have to attend church 12 times and memorize the Bible verse of their choice, recite that to their unbelieving priest, and then they're good. They're a Christian now. This is not how things work. This is not Christianity. So if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ... You're not a Christian. If you have not been born again, you're not a Christian. If you have not received Christ, you're not a Christian. This is the first thing that I'm going to say today from our text is the converting power of the gospel. When we speak of the gospel's power, the first point that Paul addresses is the power to save, the power to convert for those who have received it. Secondly, we need to talk about the positional power of the gospel. This refers to what we would call justification. From our text, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. There's a song that I don't think we've ever sung, but I can't remember the name of it right now, but I'll start quoting it and hopefully it'll come to me. It says, I know no other merit, I know no other stand. I have no other merit. I know no other stand. um, But in where glory dwelleth uh, in Emmanuel's land. So it's, um, if you can think of it, shout it out. But um, I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand. There is no other standing that we have but standing in Christ. And what that is, is what we call justification. You stand in Christ. Christ. Your position is in Christ. This is a legal declaration. This is paperwork in heaven. That paperwork got filed in heaven when you were converted. That paperwork in heaven is different from the doctrine of election. Election is eternal. God chose you before the foundation of the world. But justification is not. We do not have eternal justification. When God elected you, he did not justify you in that moment. That's what distinguishes a Reformed Baptist or a Calvinistic Baptist from a hyper-Calvinist Baptist. For the two of you who've heard me refer to uh, the... What are they called? Uh, the, there's a, a group whose uh, friend of mine is... a. Primitive Baptist, yeah. The Primitive Baptists are technically traditionally hyper-Calvinists, and what makes them hyper-Calvinists is that they believe in eternal justification. Not only did God elect you and choose you in eternity past, but he justified you in eternity past. And the consequence of that is these people don't believe you need to evangelize because the people who are justified are justified. The saved are saved and they're just out there and we don't really need to inconvenience ourselves by going to find them. Why? Well, it's kind of awkward. Have you ever tried sharing the gospel with somebody who's not a Christian? They would rather not hear about it. So we don't need to do that. The result is these churches, these primitive Baptist churches, which would be like 90 plus percent on the same page as us, there's just a few of these things here and there, such as no musical instruments, they only use the King James, and they don't believe in evangelism because they believe in eternal justification. But besides that, they're very lovely people who are Reformed Baptist. I'm telling you today that justification is not this eternal thing that happened uh, in eternity past. No, it happens at your conversion. That's when you are counted righteous in Christ. And yes, it continues eternally into the future, but it doesn't go in the opposite direction. You must be born again. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. And when you are saved, you are justified. And to be justified means to be legally counted righteous in Christ. And now, in Christ, you have a new standing. And that new standing is your position the record transfer that has taken place in heaven, and that is that the guilty verdict has been removed from your account, all of your sins have been taken away, and placed onto your account instead is all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That has been given to you. And that happens in the doctrine of justification. That is um, best friends or cousins or siblings to the doctrine of union with Christ. When you are united with Christ... That is what happens in salvation. That is what happens in justification. That means you have a new identity. You are in Christ. You have a new position. You have a new standing. This doctrine, justification, is not an experience. You will not feel different the moment before you are justified to the moment after you are justified. There's no, typically, there's no tears associated with justification. When someone gets saved and they're like, oh, how do you feel? Well, you might feel different, but the doctrine of justification is not a feeling. It's a fact. It's a record. Justification is not an experience. It is a position. It is a legal declaration. Feelings come, as Luther said in his song, feelings come and feelings go. Feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. None else is worth believing. You might not feel saved on any given day. You might not feel like God is near you. You might not feel the closeness or the warmth or the smile of the presence of God upon you. But if you are believing in Jesus, you have been justified. And that's not going to come and go. So in those moments, you look by faith to Jesus as your substitute, as the Savior of sinners, and you tell your feelings that right now you don't really matter so much. What matters is that Jesus Christ the righteous is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for me. And so as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, your problem is you're doing too much listening to yourself and not enough speaking to yourself. So you need to preach to your heart and teach your heart and instruct your emotions and instruct your heart in light of the truth of the gospel that you are believing. Number three, let's consider the sanctifying power of the gospel. Our text says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand. Verse two, by which you are Saved. I'm reading from the New King James, but I know that many of you are reading from the ESV, and the ESV says, by which you are being saved. There is this continuous, ongoing sense of salvation, which is pointed to here in our text today. Hopefully you are aware that there are different um, tenses or senses of the time frame of salvation, and that there is the work of God in the past, the work of God in the present, the work of God in the future regarding our salvation. So when he chose us in time, before the foundation of the world, that is when he began this process. But then he saves us in a moment of time, and then he continuously, continually saves us in this ongoing sanctification this is where like, if you ever get uh, like an interlinear uh, Greek New Testament that has the English and the Greek side by side and might have the, the verb tenses and you're like, oh, it says you are being saved. What does that mean? Well, that's referring to the ongoing salvation, the work that God has begun at a point in time and is going to continue, Philippians 1, 6 says. He will complete this work in you, his salvation of you. This is the sanctifying power of the gospel. The gospel is the thing by which you are being saved. Sanctification is an ongoing progression in the Christian life. When a person is saved, when a person is born again, when a person receives the Holy Spirit in the life of God and the soul of man, when this happens to them, this begins the new life. And that new life will never end you will never perish. That's why we call it eternal life. That new life that has begun, that sanctification, is an ongoing thing. There will be many ups and downs. There will be times that are so good you will feel as though you will never sin again. And then 30 minutes later, you will do something that you thought you would never do only 30 minutes before. And then you will be back in the depths of despair, and then you will continue this up-and-down journey. This is what happens. This is the nature of the Christian life. But the overall trajectory of this Christian life is that of growing. It is toward Christ. It is increasingly bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit that is produced by the Holy Spirit. Because He's the one sanctifying you. So sanctification is an ongoing progression in the Christian life where the Holy Spirit takes the word of God to make the children of God like the Son of God for the glory of God. For some reason, I know the reason, but for some reason, this is controversial. The idea that God is the one who sanctifies us. Not only does the scriptures explicitly teach this, which it does, read Galatians 3, 1 through 5, uh, read Philippians, where it says he's given you not only to, um, to will, but to do his good pleasure, that even our, our desires to follow him are given to us by God. Um, our text today, or our passage, First Corinthians fifteen ten says, "But by the grace of God I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. I labored more abundantly than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me." So when you are desiring to follow Christ, when you are seeking Him, when you are reading the Word, when you are meditating on Scripture, when you are worshiping with the body of Christ, and you're growing in your faith, that growth that's happening in you is actually the work of God. You think it's you? It's not you. It's God doing that in you. And that's the reason why both I and our confessions teach that sanctification is monergistic, not synergistic. It doesn't mean you're passive. But it means that any of the work that you're doing is actually God's work in you. It is God doing it. It is God growing you. It is God cultivating in your heart desires and affections and behavior even that you don't have the ability to author yourself. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. He doesn't save you and then say, okay, now go sanctify yourself. Or maybe it's a 50-50 thing. Or 99-1. You know, I'll sanctify you mostly, but you got to sanctify yourself. No, what he says is even when he says sanctify yourself, what he's saying is you are commanded to do this, and you're doing it by the power which I supply. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. So when we say Christ be all, that's what we mean. That it is Christ doing all of this. It is Christ who converts us. That by the power of the gospel, we are converted. It is in the power of the gospel that we receive this position of justification. That is all of grace. It is all of Christ's doing. And then sanctifying us as well. This is all of God's doing. Beyond that, fourthly, consider the clarifying power of the gospel. What the gospel does by the word of God through the Spirit is he draws a line between sheep and goats. The word of God is living and powerful, quick and powerful. The gospel gives assurance and it also exposes us as being lost when we're lost. The gospel Clarifies. Well, how does that work? Well, we'll get into that in the second half of the message, but the sneak preview of that is that the gospel and a clarity on the gospel exposes our motives and shows what our faith is in. And if our faith is not in Christ, but in something else, then we're not saved. The rubber meets the road in a lot of conversations, counseling situations. When someone's being real with you and they're sharing what's on their heart, they're sharing what they're thinking or feeling and what they've done. I've had a lot of these conversations. Frankly, I've had many of them in Rikers Island at the uh, visiting center uh, where I was speaking to an inmate who said, no, you know, it, it can't be that like... It's just not right that a murderer, like you killed somebody and by trusting in Jesus, Jesus takes that sin and that punishment and then you can go free? No way. See, that's The clarifying power of the gospel. Because the gospel says, yeah, actually that is the way this works. And the person who doesn't yet see that is someone who is not yet a Christian. Because they don't yet recognize the basic idea that Jesus, in fact, did pay for your sins. Because they're still thinking in terms of, well, I'm going to pay for my sins because I'm the one who did them. And saying, well, yeah, you are guilty and you did the sin, therefore you're going to suffer for it, unless you take the substitute, Jesus. And if you take the substitute, then you don't pay because he paid. And understanding that is the very core, the very essence of salvation, of conversion, Of understanding justification and understanding that more and more and more is the engine that drives your sanctification. Which is why we preach this same message week after week, year after year. Because we have such a tendency to drift away from this and then we start thinking in terms of works again and again. But Christ keeps his people. His sheep hear His voice. They know Him. They follow Him. So when they hear this message proclaimed again, though it might have been six and a half days since they last heard it, they're reminded of it again, and they are comforted by that message of the gospel again. And they are restored again. They are renewed. They are called back into the fold again, even if their body didn't go anywhere. It's just in their heart that began to wander, began to think in terms of works, in their own doing. So there is a clarifying power in the gospel. It provides both assurance for those who are saved and clarification for those who are lost. This is point number one. Point number two, the gospel's definition. Let's read verses three and four. What actually is the gospel? He has not yet defined it. He has just told us what it does. We look in verse three and four, we'll see the definition of the gospel. For I deliver to you, First of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. Remember the words from verse one. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel that I preached to you. And then after that, he has this parenthetical remark, the gospel, which I preached to you, that Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. That's the gospel. So if I to ever do a membership interview with any of you and I ask you, what is the gospel? The answer to that question is Christ died for my sins. And then he rose again on the third day. That's the answer I'm looking for. Anything that starts with I is not the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, I repented. No, that's not the gospel. I was this, I was that. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died for my sins. So we have the gospel's definition. The go- what the, number one, what the gospel is. Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose from the grave on the third day, according to the scriptures. The gospel, the word itself means good news news requires words it requires a proclamation that to say the words out loud these words are specifically the words of the work of Christ on the behalf of guilty sinners remember the framework from the series on romans the outline of the book of Romans, it's three points and each of the words start with a G. Does anyone remember this? How would you outline the book of Romans? And the first part is guilt. And then the second one is grace. And then the third one is gratitude. So you need to have those categories clear in your mind that there is guilt. Then there's grace. Then there's gratitude. But If you blur those things up, you will be very confused. You will have significant problems with your understanding of the gospel, and you will be preaching what we call gospel. That's where you blend law and gospel. What we're trying to address today is to be clear on both law and gospel. So what is the gospel? The gospel is good news. It is grace. It is grace alone. It is a gift Law is not grace. Law is not gift. If you start blending these things together, is what some call covenantalism, you'll have problems, and you won't preach the doctrine of justification by grace. This is all tied, we're talking about stuff that's like deep under the hood, but there is such thing as a covenant of works and covenant of grace. Christ, well, Adam failed on our behalf in the covenant of works, and then Christ obeyed on our behalf in the covenant of works. Jesus was sinless, and he obeyed the law of God perfectly for you. And then, because of that, we receive grace. Also, what, is, what the gospel is the gospel involves these indicatives. What is an indicative? An indicative is a statement of a fact, it's not a command. It's not a call. It's not something that says, you have to do these things. No, it's a statement of fact. It is a proclamation similar to the one I'm about to read. It's, in fact, the exact one. It is the one that says, Christ died for our sins. That's... The indicative, that's the statement of fact. Now, if we're going to outline that or break that down a little bit further, to speak of this proclamation, this announcement that Christ died for our sins, we need to first consider Christ. Who is Christ? What is that word? What does that word mean? That is the messianic title. The title of Jesus the Messiah. That's what the word Christ means. It means the Messiah. It means the anointed one. The term Christ is the sum of all of his description. The Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus, the eternal God, the Holy One of Israel, the omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipotent, sovereign, and all-present God. This one, yet in his incarnation, took on flesh, adding humanity to his deity. In his incarnation, he was made low. In his humanity, he was made humble and lowly. He was born in a stable to a virgin in the outskirts of Jerusalem in a town we call Bethlehem. His humanity was true humanity. He was of the same flesh as ours, yet without sin. He possessed the same human weaknesses that we have, such as experiencing physical hunger or exhaustion. He was subject to the effects of temperature. When the sun was shining, drops of sweat were appearing on his brow. When it rained, he got wet. When it snowed, he got cold. When it was hot, he got thirsty. He experienced the full range of human emotions and development and even temptation. He was tempted just like we are yet without sin. This combination of his deity and his humanity, not a combination, I'm sorry, that was a heretical expression. These are not combined, but the joining together of these. They're not blurred together, but they're brought together. That Jesus is the God-man. This is what we speak of when we say Christ. Christ, point one. Number two, died. Jesus died. He really died. There are religions that teach that Jesus didn't die. The most prominent being Islam. They said, Jesus didn't actually die. There's someone else who kind of took his place and then died. No, he actually died. Within or under the um, broader umbrella of Christianity, there are theological liberals who believe that Jesus uh, did not die on the cross. He merely, they call it the swoon theory. He fainted. He passed out. He had a really bad day. They thought he was dead. And then they buried him. But then... He's there in the cool cave, and he kind of resuscitates. He's like, I'm coming back. Because we know resurrection is impossible. So this is what happened. He just passed out. But then he recovered. And then this man who was tortured and executed and crucified by the most professional executors in the world at the time... They got it wrong. They mistakenly thought that he died even though they stabbed his side and blood and water flowed out, which indicated that he was dead. That None of that meant he was actually dead. He was actually just passing out. And then they bury him. They embalm him. Then they bury him in the tomb. Then he comes to, and then this man who just went through this most horrific of all experiences, including having much of the skin of his body peeled off by a whip, that man in a pitch black cave manages to find the door, a giant stone that weighs a couple thousand pounds, and then he is able to feel his way to that stone and then roll it out of the way. Meanwhile, it's guarded by, I don't remember how many, a couple dozen, 40, I don't know, a whole bunch of Roman soldiers. And he, this one who nearly died but just swooned, who was able to resuscitate himself and then push the stone out of the way, is then able to escape through a crowd of the finest soldiers in the world. That's what you have to believe if you believe in the swoon theory. I prefer to believe in the resurrection. Jesus died. Like dead, dead. Jesus truly died. Isaiah 53 speaks of this. It says, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of, his, of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in him. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor, the travail of his soul, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This brings us into our sub-sub point number three which is after Christ, after died, number three is four. He died four. F-O-R, four. Four. This word is one of the most important, one of the smallest, vitally important words in the Bible. In this word, for, we have the idea of substitution. He died for us. The substitutionary nature of his death is encompassed in this word, for. This like his death, is also controversial if you happen to wander into the wrong type of church. And by when I I say theologically liberal, I just mean the ones with the rainbow flags on the front. (laughs) They're the majority of churches here in New York. If you wander into any one of those churches, you will find pastors who don't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead or that he didn't actually die for our sins. Rather, they may teach something like uh, an example theory and i for us no that's barbaric that jesus would take our sins in his body on the tree that jesus would die under the wrath of god the father no that's cosmic child abuse so they say there's even a church in the east village trinity grace east village it's gone now but they taught that that was cosmic child abuse as well and there's a word for that it's called theological liberalism A guy named Schleiermacher popularized that a hundred years ago. So what do you have instead of substitution? You have example. Well, what is example? Well, example is moralism. Instead of preaching a bloody cross with a substitutionary savior who died for your guilt and your sins, instead of saving you in his death on the cross, what they have is Jesus teaches you through his suffering and his sacrifice how to be a good person. So come follow in the way of Jesus. Be good. Be nice. Volunteer at the soup kitchen. Give more money. March in the various protests. Believe it or not, the idea of substitutionary atonement outside of a very small circle of Christianity is mocked and regarded as foolish. But it's what Paul calls the foolishness of the preaching of the cross. And yeah, it is. For those who are perishing, it is foolishness. For those who are on their way to hell, it is foolishness. For those who are not actually Christian, but they might even call themselves pastor and they wear one of those collars, you know, the black one with the white thing in the middle? That's an indication in the United States that you're probably apostate. Christian denominations don't wear those. The ones who wear those are the the main line, Protestant liberals. I'm not saying no Christian pastor wears them, but I'm saying like 90 plus percent of them When Jesus died for us, this is the substitutionary nature of his his death. When a debt is owed, someone must pay. Think of these very common situations where you go with a group of friends to a restaurant and at the end of the meal, the waiter brings the, the receipt and says, we can't split this up. We all know they can split this up. They can easily split this up. They have the technology. They just don't want to. So what happens? Someone... Some one person must pay. Now, what that means is if that one person pays, they're not going to bring another receipt and make someone else pay. Only one person is paying that bill. They can't charge you that bill and then charge someone else that bill and charge someone else that bill. When that happens, that's a double, triple, quadruple payment. That's a double jeopardy. That is not just. We would call that fraud. So it is with the gospel. Only Jesus pays or we pay. We don't both pay. So in this debt analogy, you can pay Or someone else can pay for you. If someone else pays for you, then that debt is paid. And then that means you can go free. That substitution means you are able to walk away unscathed. The debt has been paid. That's the meaning of this concept that Christ died for our sins. When he died for your sins, that means he paid your penalty. He took away your sin. When we say, uh, oh dear, it's 1154. Um, When we say our sins, we need to keep moving here. Uh, When he paid our sins, this is the personal nature of his death. Do you see him dying for you? Not just for sins in a generic sense, though it was for sins. It was for our sins. It was for your sins. It was for your particular sins. When you see Jesus dying for sins, do you see him dying for you? This is what is important about the particularness of the atonement. That he did not just die in a generic sense. That he died for names and faces. He died for individuals. You know the song before the throne of God? It has a line in it that says, my name is written on his hands. Do you know where that comes from? It's from the Bible. From Isaiah 49, verse 16, it says, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. When you hear that Jesus died for you, do you see him dying with your name carved into his hand? It was for me he died. Christ died for our sins. Number six, sins. The necessity of our sins. The necessity of justice requires payment for our sins. It is because of our sins that Jesus had to die. Jesus died for our sins. Further, do you know that not all sins are equal? As our confession says, some sins are more heinous than others. Do you recognize that Jesus died even for your really bad sins? He didn't just die for your like white lies, you know. When you tell your friends, I'm on my way, and you haven't put your shoes on yet. That's a sin. It's called lying. But he also died for your bad ones, too, because that little lie right there is not as bad as you lying when there's something important at stake. Jesus died for your really bad sins. Jesus died for your abortion. Jesus died for your pride and your arrogance, Jesus died for your lying tongue. Jesus died for your feet that run to wickedness. Jesus died for your heart that thinks up wicked imaginations. And Jesus even died for hands that shed innocent blood. These are the seven things that are highlighted by Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 as seven of the most heinous things in the sight of God. So think of these Things, this, such wickedness poured out on the pure and spotless innocence of our precious Savior. There is no adequate illustration that can do justice to this. But just think with me about the holiest person that you know. A perverse word does not come from their mouth. They don't even understand dirty jokes. When you are making an innuendo that is not quite proper and you make this dirty joke in front of them, it just goes over their head because they don't get it. They don't know the lyrics to the filthy music that make up the secular worship anthems of the world, the flesh, and the devil. They don't know those songs. But you recite the first half of the song and they can't finish how that goes because they don't know because those thoughts have never entered into their minds. Meanwhile, you've memorized them. Think of this person who is not only void of impurity and evil but they are also void they are also filled with love for the Lord Jesus. And so not only do they not sing perverse songs but they sing songs of praise to Jesus while they're getting ready each day. So imagine this person and then let's say that this person that I've described to you is a 12-year-old girl and then place that 12-year-old girl on trial in a courtroom. And in that courtroom, the crimes of the worst of the worst, sinners and criminals and murderers and terrorists in this world are placed onto her account. This pure, innocent young girl. They are placed onto her record, and she is condemned as though guilty. And this long list of the crimes of this world are placed onto her account. This is a... a, a Faulty illustration. It is the best I can come up with. Our Lord Jesus, who not only was utterly pure and void of all sin and impurity, but was also full of all righteousness. He died for our sins. He not only lacked sin, but he did what was perfectly right. Have you ever had those moments where you were in a situation and something happened and you didn't know what to do and you knew you should have done something, you should have spoken up, something bad is going down or something bad is being said and you just went along with it and people thought, oh, you approve because silence means approval. The Bible says that those who know to do good and do it, don't it do do it, even to them it is sin. So think of those moments when you are passive in the face of evil. And then after the fact, you're kicking yourself for not speaking up or not intervening. Perhaps it was a psycho lady screaming at the staff in a restaurant and you just stood there and didn't do anything. And then she shoved a waitress who fell and hit her head against the wall and had to go to the hospital because she's bleeding from the head and you don't know what happened. But you do know that if you stood up and confronted that crazy lady, she would have pushed you instead. And you're a Christian. So if you got killed, you'd go to heaven. Or maybe it was the rowdy drunk college guy who's picking a fight with an elderly homeless man on the subway. Or maybe it was your dad mocking your mom at Thanksgiving dinner and your mom left the table in tears and you just sat there in silence. Jesus always did the right thing. He always perfectly judged those situations. In any of these situations where you were frozen for the moment, you didn't speak up, you didn't stand up for the weak or defenseless, you watched as the innocent suffered without anyone to defend them, our Lord Jesus not only was pure and without sin, but he was full of all righteousness. And he's the one who died for our sins. He always did what was right. He spoke with perfect wisdom. He intervened when the hypocritical Pharisees... Oh no, something just happened in my notes... He intervened when the hypocritical Pharisees descended upon the adulterous woman, yet without excusing her, he silenced them. Jesus always did what was right. He wasn't frozen in fear or paralyzed with hesitation about overreacting. No, he was full of all righteousness. He was full of perfection. And this is the one on whom our sins were placed. So when we're speaking about, point two, what the gospel is, we now need to speak about what the gospel is not. Hopefully we will land this plane someday. Only four more pages of notes. We are halfway through. What is the gospel not? This question is of utmost importance as both in the church today and the church. Historically, there has been a tremendous amount of confusion about something as basic as the definition of the gospel and its distinction from the law. The other day, Darlene asked me, who gets this law-gospel distinction right? Are there other people that you would recommend and my immediate response was, Martin Luther, why am I going back 500 years? Well, it is difficult to think of many who really keep their categories clear. I, when I said Martin Luther, I instantly also thought of a second person who does really good with that, but I didn't say it for a complicated reason. That second figure is Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon does great with the law-gospel distinction. If you listen to his preaching, this is the greatest preaching of Christ you will probably ever hear. But there is a glaring problem with Charles Spurgeon, and that is that he has a very high estimation of Richard Baxter. What's wrong with Richard Baxter, you asked? Well, Richard Baxter was a Protestant Catholic. And when I say Catholic, I mean like the dude did not believe in justification by faith. Yet he is widely regarded in the Reformed circles as because he wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor, but it's not about Reformed theology in the slightest. He didn't believe in justification by faith, he believed in the Catholic view of salvation. And for whatever reason, Spurgeon has this very high estimation of Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter was a Neonomian. That means new law. And he had what effectively amounted to a Roman Catholic view of justification. In other words, you have to behave in order to get to heaven. Which was the driving force for Baxter's very famous pastoral care. Which was this practice of constantly checking up on people to make sure they hadn't lost their salvation yet. And to continuously check up on them to make sure they maintained it. So how does Spurgeon preach the law and the gospel so well, yet he has a very positive view of Richard Baxter? How does that work? Now, if what I've just described to you is surprising to you, I'm going to insult you right now. You must be new here. If it's surprising to you that a good, godly man who gets a lot of things right, maybe even most everything he gets right, but yet he has this area that he, he like permits something that we just... Baffles your mind. That's not a new problem. If that's surprising to you, you must be new here, because our modern Christian leaders blur the lines on the gospel preaching all the time. Or they associate with those who do. They associate with men who slip and slide into neo-nomianism, or they teach ideas like final justification or federal vision. Why would our historical heroes be any different? What am I talking about? Well, let's put the rubber on the road here. I'm talking about men like John Piper and Doug Wilson. They both teach uh, final justification and federal vision, which are denials of sola fide. But yet, in our circle, people are like, oh, hey, this guy's great. Come speak at my conference. These these problems are pervasive. They're everywhere. We don't have theological and doctrinal purity. The men who I can think of who get the law gospel distinction and keep it clear could probably be counted on one hand with fingers to spare. There is no line between those who get this and those who don't get this in our circles. Generally speaking, these types of men who get it and those who don't get it speak at the same conferences. They're side by side on the same platforms. These are the Merrow Men versus the Neonomians. It's a historical controversy called the Merrow Controversy, which we're already after 12 right now, so I can't tell you about that. But if you listen to all the content on our church YouTube account, you'll find it in there in many places. But I will make an effort to gather a list of such Merrow Men in the days ahead. These are men who preach the law and the gospel, and they keep their categories clear. By the way, point seven. We're still in our subpoints here. So we have Christ died for our sins, and then He was buried and rose from the third day. Buried in rose on the, from the grave on the third day, according to the scriptures. The resurrection of Christ is more than a byword and more than an afterthought. Even though it is probably would look like an afterthought based on my time allotment in today's sermon. The resurrection of Christ is the difference between heaven and hell. Jesus actually rose from the dead. He is a risen Savior. And the reason we don't sing the song, He Lives Here, you know the song, He Lives, He Lives? Like, we don't sing that here. Why? Because it says at the end of it, I know He lives because He lives within my heart. And that's wrong. He doesn't just live in our emotions. He lives at the right hand of God, the Father. He is alive today, not just in our minds. This bit that I just spent the last 15 seconds describing to you is, frankly, the difference between old school theological liberalism and biblical Christianity. This is why we must be attentive because these are subtle differences. And for people who would rather feel than think, these types of things fly over their heads, and they're like, oh, but he's such a good speaker. That's why the Bible talks about people who accumulate false teachers who tickle their ears, who say things in nice ways, who emphasize the law, who emphasize your work, your obedience, your doing. They blur law and gospel, Jesus is not just risen in our hearts, but he is risen indeed. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. He's not just dwelling in our hearts. Next, the law is not the gospel. So we have what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. The the law is not the gospel. It is easy to get very excited about law-keeping It is easy to get really animated about our works because our works give us something to do. And then when this is wrongly taught, it leads us to think that we can improve upon our justification by our activity. I'm sure none of you would think this way, but sometimes I'm tempted to think this way, such as I'm a super Christian because I save babies from being killed at Planned Parenthood. Or I'm a super Christian because I read my Bible for 30 days in a row. Or I did 365 days and I didn't miss a single day. Wow, God must like me better. Now, maybe you've never thought that way, but maybe you thought, oh, I must not be a Christian because I don't do those things. Well, that's the same frame of mind. It's just the opposite. You might not be a Christian because you didn't read your Bible enough. Now, I'm not making a comment on whether or not you are a Christian, but please know that reading your Bible and saving babies doesn't save you because moral reform doesn't save you. Your works cannot save you. When you find yourself doubting your salvation, the solution is not to just go read the Bible more or go save some babies. That's what we call law. The solution is to go to Christ, the Savior of sinners. The gospel is what saves. The prerequisites of the gospel are not the gospel. The doctrine of God, the holiness of God, that's not the gospel. The doctrine of creation, that's not the gospel. There's so many prerequisites of the gospel, things that you kind of need to understand in order for the gospel to really make sense. That's not the gospel. It's good to know those things, but that doesn't save you. Next, the response of the gospel is not the gospel. The call to repent and believe, that's not the gospel. Having faith, faith in faith, we call it fideism, F-I-D-E, Fidi. faith Uh, That's not saving Moral reform, repentance, sorrow over your sin Turning over a new leaf, New Year's resolutions None of those things save And those things are not even distinctly Christian If they are not associated with Christ If you're not believing the gospel Then having faith doesn't matter The response of the gospel is not the gospel. The fruit of the gospel is not the gospel. The stuff that the gospel does in you, that's also not the gospel. Imperatives are not the gospel. Commands are not the gospel. Our faith in the gospel is not the gospel. Our testimony is not the gospel. Hey, just just share your testimony and that's how you can share the gospel. Well, no. The way you came to Christ is not what saves people. When Jesus died on the cross, that's what saves people. So your testimony is not the gospel, your assurance is not the gospel, your experience is not the gospel, even your conversion is not the gospel, and your obedience is not the gospel. Also, loving God and loving your neighbor is not the gospel. So, I'm very sorry, we are still well over time and I've got more things that you need to hear. Have you considered the power of this law gospel distinction for counseling and soul care and its tie to union with Christ? This is revolutionary once you get it. We don't have time to talk about this. But when you are face to face with your evil, the bad things that you've done, and because of you understand the category, categories of law and gospel, you can say, yes, I did this thing and it was wrong. It was sin. But Jesus died for sinners. You are not cast out you are not destroyed by this but you are healed you are restored in my style of preaching and teaching and pastoral care and interacting with you I have different different modes and different things that I do so for example I like to drop breadcrumbs I like to draw in the skittish and fearful using gentle words You know, you've seen the little bird at the park. You're tossing crackers to try to get it to come closer. So you're not not just like saying, come here and trying to grab the bird. No, you're speaking gently. And so I do that. I do that often. Because the problem is there are people who teach a false gospel who are in our circles. And if I just straight up made a list and posted it on the website or the app and said, hey, these are all the people who do this wrong, you would be very offended and probably not come back. So instead, we teach positively. We demonstrate because sometimes the relatives of these people even attend our church. You don't want to say, hey, bro, your uncle or your grandfather or whoever is a heretic. No, instead, we just gently demonstrate the truth of the gospel and the active obedience of Christ in the place of sinful people so that now there's nothing that you need to pay because Jesus paid it all. You are not saved by your faithfulness. You're saved by the faithfulness of Christ. So that's the breadcrumb approach. Then we try to gently persuade. We try to draw in the wounded to speak tenderly to those who have been wrongly treated. And then last, we try to loudly proclaim to summon the deaf, because some people are very hard of hearing. Or completely deaf. Or maybe they have really thick heads, and it takes a lot of repetition in a very loud way to get stuff through their heads. So we try to do all of these things. We try a variety of approaches, speaking directly through open statements of the truth, and then we try gentle words of suggestion, such as, "I'd recommend this book instead of this book," or "I'd rather you not attend that conference." That's just a really nice way of saying, "Don't do that." <laughs> but I'm not your parent, and I can't control you." The model for this, the biblical grounds for this is First Thessalonians 5:14. Paul says, "We urge you, brothers, to admonish the idol encourage the faint hearted help the weak be patient with them all so if you want to reread that later what you'll find is that there's a different approach taken to dealing with different types of people in Jesus's ministry you see him reference the bruised reed or the smoking flax what is a bruised reed what is a smoking flax well smoking flax is the candle wick that was lit and now it's kind of gone out, but it's still red. And if you take care of that and you gently, cautiously, carefully tend to that smoking flax, you can flame that back up again and get the fire burning again. And that's the way the Lord treats us in our weakness. The bruised reed. Think of the, I don't know if you can see them on the rivers here, but there are these um, Plants that are growing along the edges of these reeds that are growing in the edges of the rivers. And a bruised reed is one that is kind of snapped. It's broken, but it's still attached. So the way the Lord cares for us is gently. As with a bruised reed, it, it, it's, it's snapped and it's broken. It's not in good shape. It's probably not. It might, it might not make it, but we're going to be careful with this. And he speaks tenderly to us. So perhaps you are doubting and Fearful. Do you see the all-sufficiency of Jesus as the perfect Savior for sinners? Do you see Jesus' ability by his death to make full satisfaction for your sins? Do you recognize the reality of his resurrection? Have you heard these words as speaking to you, which say, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Perhaps you're not just doubting or fearful. Perhaps you have wandered into the path of sin. Do you see that sin which you are actively committing as sin for which Christ died? Do you see Christ made sin for you? Do you see Christ's willingness to take your sins, your wickedness, your perversion, and to cast your sins on himself to die for them, to place your sins in the deepest part of the sea, to separate you from your sin as far as the east is from the west? Do you see that the sins you cannot forget, he will not bring to remembrance? Do you believe that Jesus really, truly paid it all? Perhaps you've begun to think about the last day, the day when you will face that last enemy of death, and you're preparing for Judgment Day, and you want to make sure that you'll be all right. Well, I'm not going to quote the entirety of this song. I'll just quote verse 2. It says, Bold shall I stand in Thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am from fear, from sin and fear and guilt and shame. Lord, I believe Thy precious blood, which at the mercy seat of God forever doth for sinners plead, for me and for my soul was shed. Jesus, be endless praise to thee, whose boundless mercy hath for me, for me a full atonement made, an everlasting ransom paid. When from the dust of death I rise to claim my mansion in the skies, e'en then this shall be all my plea. Jesus hath lived, hath died for me. O let the dead now hear thy voice, now bid thy ransom ones rejoice. Their beauty this, their glorious dress, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us to recognize the sufficiency of Christ. This is not a theological fad. It is not a trend to hop onto. That Christ is, in fact, all. He is all of our hope and all of our plea. And he is the savior of sinners, both at the beginning of their life, clean to the end. He is all of our access to you and that our works contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin which made it necessary. Lord, I pray that you would help us to turn away from things which are faults, from ideas which would lead us astray, for teachings which would cause us to get stuck in despair, but that we would see the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ. I pray these things in his name now. Amen.